This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the February Room Tributary Short Stories. In this episode, host Justin Carnop provides a well-learned lesson fishing on the Metolius. Thank you for tuning in. And the best way to support this podcast is to like, review, and share. If Middle Earth had a trout stream, it might just begin at the base of a dormant volcano, then sort of disappear into a mysterious forest. Tolkien need look no further than Central Oregon's Metolius River for inspiration. While I've yet to spy an orc on the banks of the Metolius, I've certainly heard some things go bump in the night down in the remote campgrounds located at the terminus of the jeep trails. Perhaps the biggest mystery lies beneath in the guise of native red band rainbows, obsequious browns, and elusive bull trout. This devilish spring creek, which often behaves more like a belligerent freestone, is renowned for turning away seasoned anglers. My childhood friend had a family cabin on the Metolius. Screen porch, musky smell, wood heat, knickknacks in every nook and cranny, the whole nine yards. Upstream from the cabin, we snorkeled in the icy water, then dried off by riding our bikes to the cafe for apple pie a la mode, impervious to the sensation of chill. Dipping into the little fly shop in the rear of the Camp Sherman store, which served as the gathering spot for chagrined anglers, we listened to woeful stories of disappointment from what must have been the Bad Fisherman's Club. 
for right out the front door, a viewing station over the river offered a window into the potential. For a quarter, you could obtain a handful of pellets and witness the carnage as the girthy hatchery trout that lived beneath the bridge competed for compressed fish food. Look, but don't touch. No fishing was allowed from the bridge. But that wasn't the case downstream. We discovered that success on the Metolius was simply a matter of intercepting the schedule of the hatchery truck. The rig, which resembled a cement truck, would release its payload and we would wade in downstream with little wooden beads, pellet imitation, fashioned to hooks. Catching trout 30, 40 at a time didn't seem so challenging at all, and the vast selection of intricately tied flies in the store totally unnecessary. Then, in my late teens, the river attained wild and scenic designation, and fisheries managers thought better of playing God. Rather than infiltrating a native population with pen-reared offshoots from the McLeod or wherever, they left the river's trout to their own devices. I then joined the ranks of the Bad Fisherman's Club, struggling to catch a fish or two, then retreating to the fly shop for a lifeline. The exception to the Metolius rule of two two fish being a great day on the river, was the May-June emergence of green drake mayflies. These lime green feasts were too much for the shadowy denizens of the boulder-strewn lies to resist, and wild red band rainbows would throw caution to the proverbial wind and rise for a size six comparadon or Stalcup's green drake. This was often the only time of year that we would actually get to cradle a mature Metolius redside. And if there's a prettier trout on the planet, I haven't seen it. The river's name, Metolius, is Sahaptin for whitefish, air quotes, and refers not to the mountain whitefish that thrive in the cool, clear waters, but the appearance of Chinook salmon deteriorating on their spawning run. Despite efforts to the contrary, runs of kings are but a memory. The construction of the Pelton Round Butte hydroelectric project in 1964 essentially extirpated the wild anadromous fish that once left the Pacific to spawn in the Metolius, crooked, and upper Deschutes basins. While the salmon perished and fed the towering forest, the steelhead then flipped a bitch and swam all the way back downriver to Astoria, another example in many of the migratory feats of sea-run rainbow trout that defies logic. The whitefish the natives referred to still exist, somewhat. Zombie salmon still haunt the river in the form of diminutive kokanee, planted in Lake Billy Chinook for the entertainment of anglers. I guess landlocked sockeye will have to do in the Anthropocene. While the partitioning off of this river system from the Columbia spelled doom for anadromous wild salmonids, it created ideal habitat for a native predatory char. Bull trout pace Lake Billy Chinook and freely swim between the Metolius and Reservoir, devouring food sources, namely those kokanee that pretend to be salmon, and head up the river in the late summer to deposit sterile eggs. The bull trout follow them, fattening up before they legitimately procreate within the basin. With their duty fulfilled, they're looking to eat again, and the kokanee are off the menu. The hungry char turn their attention to the other food sources in the river, and that includes just about everything from ducklings to drakes. Metolius bull trout, those that divide time between river and reservoir in particular, can grow to immense proportions. 
You may not find a bigger river resident salmonid on a fly rod in the lower 48. In my mid-20s, my friend Hans and I had intentions of encountering a couple of these holdover bull trout on one winter's day, and had hiked a couple miles to distance ourselves from the other sports with the same intention. We were just beginning to fine-tune our approach and hook into more than the occasional bully, mostly fish in the 18 to 24 inch range. The pastime filled the void between fall steelhead season and spring dry fly fishing and didn't require a winter's trip over the pass from Bend. I'd never caught one of the Goliaths though, nor had my counterpart. An acquaintance, who probably should have kept his lips tight, had told me about a deep trench that was home to particularly large representatives. Following his loose directions, we hiked until we came to a hole that fit the description. Armed with a stiff six weight, a pal Tiburon, I chucked my double nymph rig into the depths of the hole. A typical Metolius plunge pool back eddy, the only way to reach the bull trout within the regulations on the Metolius, which forbade the addition of split shot to the leader, was to lob heavy bead-headed nymphs at the end of a long leader upstream from the tail out and stack mend until you figured you'd pert near reach bottom. When the yarn indicator dipped, you'd set the hook with huzzah. I was doing just that when the line pulled back and my heart paused with the initial adrenaline surge of a hooked fish. My excitement waned once I realized the weight of the resistance then saw the shimmering outline of a whitefish struggling at the end of the line. While I'm no besmircher of whitefish, there's always an inkling of disappointment when we've discovered anything but our target species. Then, the rod surged, indicating a significant increase in whatever was attached to the end of the line. A bull trout, one of them biggins, had eaten the whitefish, and now the fight was on. The bull trout was massive, made even more so by the 15-inch whitefish T-boned in its cavernous maw. I tried my best to keep the fish within the confines of the hole, but the duo was too strong and ran right past me, hit the tail out, and fled downstream with abandon. I had little choice but to follow and raced after the fish. I held on as the bull trout whitefish combo navigated two riffles and fly line turned to backing on my reel. I caught up to the fish at another back eddy plunge pool and momentarily had things under control, regaining my fly line. Then the line went limp and the sum of potential catch went from two to zero. Despondent, I reeled in and shrugged at Hans, who had followed me downriver to assist. With time still left in the afternoon, we made our way back up to the hole. Hans resumed his position in the plunge while I returned to the pool. No sooner had I stripped the length of fly line from my reel than the specter of the huge bull trout appeared in the tail out. It just held there, fitting back and forth, appearing rather irritated. Logically, I lobbed my girdle bug pheasant tail combo upstream and mended to drift over the fish. As soon as the big black rubber leg fly entered its field of view, it swam over, ate it, and the rodeo resumed. 
The second encounter was a carbon copy of the first, racing downstream after the fish, struggling for purchase on the slickery substrate, regaining momentary control in the lower plunge pool, and anticipating the inevitable moment when the fish would spit the fly. Although this time, with an actual hook connecting us, the system held together. Hans helped me with the challenging task of getting a hand around the immense tail of the huge char. Neither of us had any experience in landing a fish of this size, as the majority of summer steelhead that we caught topped out at around 10 pounds. This fish was nearly twice that. Somehow, despite losing the handle multiple times, we were able to corral the beast in the shallows and subdue it for a photo. Miraculously, at this very moment, my girlfriend at the time and her parents arrived on the scene. They had been filming potential locations for our pending matrimony, one that never occurred, but that is another story entirely. They decided to go for a walk to see if they could locate us, and handy cam in hand, my would-be father-in-law captured the last moments of the event on video. Logically, I showed this videotape to my cronies and played it on a loop in our fledgling fly shop once we got back home. I still have that video somewhere in my basement in the litter of old photographs. The fish remains the largest non-anadromous river salmonid I have ever caught on a fly rod, though an asterisk is in order. Likely, I would have never landed that pole trout had I not had the chance to fight it twice.